Hold on to your wallets. The 88th Texas Legislative Session starts next week. We hope you got to spend some quality time with family and friends over the holidays. Season 2 of Taxpayer Talks starts right now. Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. This is Tim Harden, president of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. I'm here with Jeremy Kitchen, our executive director, and we are here starting season two of Taxpayer Talks. And of course, next week we have a legislative session happening in Texas. I'm excited. How about you, Jeremy? Uh, excited is an interesting word. I mean, it, it'll definitely give us a lot of stuff to talk about as it progresses. But, you know, what is the saying? You know, when when the, when Congress or when the legislature's in session, taxpayers beware. So... Yeah, you know, usually more bad things happen than good things happen for sure. I think for, from TFR standpoint, you know, this is kind of our Super Bowl. Um, we uh, have been known for uh, well over a decade for scoring legislators in our fiscal index. Just want to remind uh, viewers to go and subscribe on our uh, our website, texastaxpayers.com. You can sign up for those vote notices and you can get real live updates on what we're going to be scoring and why we're going to be scoring. Uh, of course, we have a lot uh, coming up in the first week. You want to break down kind of what we expect uh, and kind of the normal order of business uh, in the Texas House and Senate next go round? Yeah, sure. So at noon on Tuesday, January 10th is when the legislature officially convenes. Uh, so for those that are trying to make the trek for Austin for whatever reason for that, that is kind of the time hack you have to be worried about. Um, it's at noon. It's Pretty much ceremonial, right? Like a lot of lawmakers will have their families and everything there. But of course, you know, where the quote unquote circus happens, where most people um, are interested to go see is the Texas House, because the first order of business, right, is to uh, elect a speaker of the House. And as we've talked about previously, there is a race, at least currently, a race for um, Texas speaker. You've got, of course, the incumbent, Dade Phelan. Um, and then you've got Tony Tinderold, a taxpayer champion, uh, who is also running. So assuming that uh, Representative Tinderhold brings it to the floor, there will be a speaker vote of some sort um, happen. Of course, they get sworn in and everything that day, too. The Senate uh, is normally full of a little bit less fireworks, right? You kind of have the they also get sworn in on that side. Um, they appoint, I believe, the first day a speaker or I'm sorry, a, like a, a president pro tem right um, over there too it's much more of a ceremonial position and what have you and then really you don't really have stuff happen or start to happen until like day two day three when they debate the um, housekeeping uh, resolutions for how the the rules right will work for both the house and senate and that sort of thing and then um, you know kind of a lull if you will for a few weeks until they get committees and so that's kind of what to expect at least at the start of next week yeah i think um you know, as far as what to watch out for, I think the speaker vote is going to be the first thing. And and I think you, the, the house quite honestly is, is I'll just be honest, it's more exciting than the Senate. The Senate's fairly, fairly boring. Um, the house, uh, there's a lot of fights uh, that we've heard rumors are going to go down. One of course is the speaker's race. And of course, uh, you know, Tony Tenderholt um, challenged uh, Phelan based on a few different things, but the thing he's been most vocal about is uh, appointing Democrat chairs, which is part of the Republican party platform. And 
And so a lot of people are seeing this as a vote, either endorsing uh, Democrat chairs or not feeling being one who leans towards, obviously, he had a, a Democrat speaker pro Tim last go around and, and, uh, and appointed multiple Democrat chairs. And then, of course, when we get to the rules fight, there likely will be a rule as well uh, that says something like, you know, we're not allowed to uh, to appoint minority party is probably how it's going to be uh, phrased. And there will be a vote on that. So you will see uh, Republicans and how they're split on who supports Democrat chairs, who does not support Democrat chairs. So there should be some fireworks uh, in this first uh, week. And then, as you said, kind of after this this first week. It's just kind of a big lull period, um, and that's mainly due to um, the the time constraints and constitutional restraints and, and when committees can meet. Uh, it usually takes about three or four weeks before the speaker actually comes out and announces uh, who he's uh, you know appointed to committees. And so uh, we'll have a lot uh, a lot to talk about and a lot to speculate about after this first week. Yeah, I mean, I think the first what I like to tell people when we go and speak about this, right, just to kind of put a cap on this is like the first 60 days of session is a lot of political posturing, right? It's the committee assignments. It's the governor, the lieutenant governor, maybe the speaker, right, publicly letting their priorities, their legislative priorities be known. But the bill filing deadline, which marks the 60th day, isn't until March 10th, <laughs> Friday, March 10th. So, uh, you know, there's kind of this weird lull uh, for the 60 days, which is full of a bunch of, you know, l- lawmakers are having meetings with lobbyists, constituents, all of those things. They're continuing to file their bills, right? But generally nothing really moves through the process until then. Yeah, I think, you know, from from a taxpayer advocacy standpoint, if you're going to go up and advocate for something in session, that time is the time to do it. I I mean, I think realistically, the best time would have been before session starts, you know, in, in the interim. And we've talked about that uh, before. But uh, if, if you really want to go talk to your legislator, February, end of January, early February is the time, uh, because as session progresses, things get exponentially more busy uh, all the way up until culminating in, you know, the beginning of May, really, and then things start dying down again. So if y'all are interested in, in uh, kind of going up and letting your lawmaker know how you feel about a certain uh, subject, maybe proper taxes or, or something along that it's this is the time so um, try and work your way down there or at least call or email uh, and let them know how they feel or else they don't know so it's definitely worthwhile to plug here right that we've got a bunch of resources on our website right so if you go to texastaxpayers.com go to the text ledge right portion of the menu up there and we've tried to provide a lot of resources links to things that are relevant uh, to stuff we just talked about here uh, for instance and of course all the stuff that we're trying to promote as an organization as well so Absolutely. Well, we have um, uh, a few big things uh, that we have talked about that is certainly going to be dealt with. One of them is uh, Chapter 313s, which actually just expired at the end of this last year, 2022, which uh, we're incredibly happy about. However, uh, we've had Dave Phelan uh, and a few others come out saying, I think it was even maybe Jared Patterson tweeted about it, that uh, they'd like to see him come back in a different form without renewables, which is a rumor we've heard for months and months and months. So I think we're definitely going to see a push uh, for a new corporate welfare program. I don't know what they're going to call it, but it's going to be similar to 313s. They're saying, you know, with more oversight and not, you know, no renewables, uh, you know, wind and solar and things like that in there. Um, and so, um, what, what do you think is going to happen, Jeremy? I mean, we, we've talked about both, both of the parties opposing this. Uh, why, why are they trying to do this again? I, there's, cause it's money, right? Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> 
To, to be clear, even though the Chapter 313 tax abatement program, which we've talked about in several episodes here, even though that is no longer, as of December 31st, there's still corporate welfare in Texas, right? Chapter 313s just happen to be the largest corporate welfare program um, in the state. That aside, um, I tend to think, you know, the, the pessimist in me tends to think that it will be brought back. I think the tweet, uh, I believe it, you're right, it was from Jared Patterson, right, basically kind of gave away what the game is, which is they're going to bring maybe people that were opposed to it previously on board by kind of taking their renewables, the green energy portion uh, of those that would qualify for the, the tax incentive out uh, to bring it back, uh, contrary to both major parties uh, not necessarily caring about that, bring it back. And it's because money is involved in it, right? And it's not just implicit like that there's money, the tax abatement itself involved, but a lot of these companies that qualify are also, would you know it, donors, right, to a lot of, and they're huge donors, uh, to a lot of these elected officials that kind of are in favor or vote in favor um, of this sort of thing. And so it's important to kind of, you can't necessarily disconnect those. And so there's definitely pressure being put on them by lobbyists and these these very well-funded corporations and organizations that qualify for this, for sure. Yeah, I, and and just to kind of speculate a little bit, and and the, yet again, this is this is rumor. Uh, what I've heard from a few different people is uh, the plan is to try and get this through with uh, without renewables, but then you know there'll be differences between the Senate and House, and they will go to conference committee and they will slip them bad boys right back in there. And this is a very typical tactic. Uh, and if if we have heard this rumor, uh, then very likely people around the Capitol understand that this is the plan, and so uh, it's our job to communicate uh, to taxpayers and voters kind of what the plan is. And if it comes to fruition, then you know this wasn't just some accident. Uh, this is something that was planned from the beginning. So at least be watching for that. It is a rumor. So I can't, you know, I can't confirm, but, you know, nine out of 10 times rumors are pretty true. When I think it's worthwhile to mention yet again, right? I, I, we, we've talked about this in several episodes, so maybe don't go into details too much. But, you know, we're, we're opposed to this for a lot of reasons. But for taxpayer purposes, right, the, what, someone else getting an excuse Exclusion, i.e. business, and exclusion, by the way, an individual taxpayer doesn't qualify for only means that you're going to pay more in taxes, right? That's that's what that translates to. And so it's important that we hold the line to ensure uh, that this does not make a return. Yeah, when, when businesses are getting tax breaks, uh, the people paying for it are taxpayers. And that can take a number of different taxation forms. It could be property taxes. It could be sales tax, gas tax. I mean, you, you name it. But ultimately, someone's having to pay that bill. And it's almost always the individual. It's almost always individual taxpayers. And so this is why we oppose corporate welfare in all of their forms. And quite honestly, uh, I think uh, the Republican Party platform and conservatives in general just oppose corporate welfare, uh, giving uh, you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to corporations that are multi billion dollar multinational corporations just silly and when you've looked at polling uh, as far as why businesses are moving to texas it is not because of tax abatements it's because of our climate uh, and it's because of our culture uh, that is the main reason and most i think i think uh, the vast majority like seven out of ten or eight out of ten companies would have moved their headquarters to texas whether or not they got a tax abatement so why are we doing this as you said it's it's usually backroom deals and donations and things that you know lawmakers don't want to talk about yeah, definitely agree. I mean, it's uh, it, it'll come back. We'll see. It's just important that we we hold the line this cycle. So, 
So uh, on the national level, of course, uh, we passed that uh, disgusting omnibus bill that uh, added another $1.7 trillion uh, to our budget. Uh, I believe uh, Chip Roy had a, a release, um, a press release uh, talking about it. You want to kind of explain uh, what happened on the federal level? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk, and obviously we're a few weeks removed from this now, um, right? And this was now the co- previous Congress as they're attempting to swear in uh, the new Congress, right, as of now. But it's important, and this is kind of prompted, right, this current kerfuffle we see with relation to the Speaker in the House and everything is that you have, um, you know, the, kind of the dead of night, no time to read, you know, once again, right, to no one's surprise, you had um, – both at the help of Democrats and Republicans in both the Senate and House, it's already been signed by the president, right? This like 4,100 page bill that uh, cost $1.7 trillion full of just tons of pork and earmarks. Um, I think to Chip Roy's uh, credit, and I'll read a portion of the quote here, right? He, he kind of sums it up best. He says, today, the United States Senate, the Senate supposedly the upper chamber, the House of Lords in the United States, if you will, sent us or is in the process of sending us after voting for it, a 4,155-page bill unveiled yesterday morning at 1.30 a.m. that will cost $1.7 trillion. This bill will increase spending $118 billion. The bill has $45 billion for the country of Ukraine, which is 21% over President Biden's request for their support, by the way, $40 billion for disaster relief, $15 $15 billion for 7,234 earmarks with the senior senator of Alabama, Richard Shelby, walking out of the Senate with his legacy of $670 million alone. <laughs> it's just, it's full of just stuff. I mean, there's tons of lawmakers that voted against this. I provided lists of just kind of the weird and odd sort of things that were included in the quote unquote government spending bill, uh, which put another way is, yeah, it funds government, but also funds a lot of these pet projects in uh, their respective U.S. uh, senators and or congressmen uh, districts and what have you. And the takeaway here, right, to kind of put a cap on this, the takeaway is that, um, you know, Everyone else is reeling from record inflation. I don't know about you. My Christmas cost a hell of a lot more than it did last year for my family and kids. Uh, Same with food and everything else. And yet you've got government essentially asking for a raise, right? And Republicans and Democrats alike just passed this. You had the president, I don't know if you saw, they flew it down on a jet, right? Because he was on vacation so he could sign it uh, just to, just to get this approved and, and going. So crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very disconcerting. And, you know, we were, we were actually talking about this before uh, we started, which is uh, the, the, the Tea Party movement of, you know, 2008, 2010 uh, was, was based on being taxed enough already. There was a very big component of fiscal conservatism uh, that was driving that movement. And it seems like, you know, about 2015, 16, when populism and Donald Trump kind of took a hold of politics, we've just lost all concern for fiscal responsibility and fiscal conservatism. Um, and it's, 
it's really concerning to me that everything has become so tribal and it's more about getting the other party than it is about not destroying our country for our children. Uh, the fact that we're what, 32, 33 trillion. And I don't even know what it is anymore. It's just a made up number. Right. Um, it, it is very concerning, not only at the federal level, but at the state level, we're having budgetary problems as well. Uh, we are, we are, even with a cap, we are inflating our budget. We're well on our way to three times the budget that we had uh, in 2000. Uh, and that is far disconnected from population plus inflation. And uh, it just seems like where is the concern from conservatives that we are absolutely destroying our economy um, because of things like easy money? Uh, and of course, the last, the last year of Trump's office, he just flooded us with, so there's, there's blame there and Biden has flooded even more, right? And so there's blame with, with both, but um, it, it was just a bad move uh, during the COVID pandemic to just flood the U.S. economy with easy free money. And we are still reeling years, years, almost oh, we're on third year after 2020, right? We're still reeling with record 40-year high inflation. I think we're in the sevens right now. Uh, and there is no sign that that is coming down anytime soon. Uh, you mentioned like expensive. I think I looked at eggs the other day and eggs are like 13 bucks or something like that. It is insane. And this is a direct result of easy money, stimulus, uh, and inflating our currency. Uh, and don't let anybody tell you it's anything other than that. You know, yes, there is small issues with supply chain and this and that, but ultimately it comes down to one thing and one thing only. It's our monetary policy and that we have devalued the dollar and it will continue to be devalued into the future as long as we keep this like garbage fiat made up money, just keep pumping the economy. Eventually, uh, all the all the stilts that are holding up our economy, uh, they're going to start breaking because you can't sustain this forever with with this you know modern monetary theory you kind of alluded to this and perhaps this is a good segue to the next thing uh, we wanted to talk about that's kind of been in the news but you know you would hope in a federalist kind of system uh, a republic if you will that like the states would act as a bulwark right like kind of the, to push back on this sort of thing and as we all know right that not, has not necessarily happened but you know we're going into a legislative session where lawmakers have the opportunity to do that right and to kind of set the tone and be fiscally responsible right uh, and wouldn't you know it as we've talked about several times right and it's a part of our texas prosperity plan we're facing a 27 likely higher billion dollar surplus i.e over collected tax money and you've got, you know, you've got people, um, which I wrote about this week, you've got people like Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, right, not necessarily on the same page as the governor on what to do, right, with that surplus money. Uh, you, he did an interview recently where he was talking about, okay, we'll use some kind of unclear amount of, of that, but it'll be in the billions, but some unclear amount of the surplus to to do things like provide actual property tax relief. But man, we need to use use it on this litany this whole host of other things as well which is definitely different even though he made this effort in the interview to talk about how he's he's with the governor on this it's certainly different you can't ignore it from when you have the governor talking about using half of the surplus right uh, which would come out to like 12.5 billion dollars then you also have the governor in that in the lone gubernatorial debate back in the general election um was at the end of september when he said, talking about using it to put us on a path to its elimination. 
Dan Patrick's not saying that, right? And of course, as we've talked about several times, the House uh, leadership is not saying that. And so going into this session, taxpayers should absolutely be concerned that you have kind of the big three, right? The leaders, the Republican leaders in in, in, uh, in Texas, not necessarily on the same page with uh, providing relief to taxpayers, not only in the form of property tax, right? But, you know, decreasing spending because ultimately the, the, the burden of government, right, is spending. And if we're being asked to kind of keep our wallets uh, closed, right? If we're, if we're being forced to, frankly, government should absolutely do that too. Yeah, it's 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 rather infuriating uh, listening uh, to to everyone talk, especially when likely we're going to have about a thirty billion dollar surplus and uh, the the biggest cry. And you can see it in all of the bills that have been filed. There's been a lot of property tax bills filed because this is pretty much the number one gripe uh, of of Texans. Uh, at least when, you know in our circles when we go and speak and talk. Uh, and it's funny all the semantic games uh, that are played. Uh, you know, you have Patrick. You know, oh, it's half half of the spin. Spending cap. Well, first and foremost, uh, we'll let everyone know every conservative in the state is perfectly fine with you breaking the spending cap to give taxpayers relief. And so it's a silly argument that, oh, we want to be fiscally conservative and not break the cap. Uh, it's okay to break the cap if you want to give billions in tax relief to Texans, first and foremost, right? Uh, it, it's it's funny to me, like I said, all of them being really carefully, Abbott says half. And then, uh, you know, if I was like, well, what do you mean by half, you know? And so, so uh, ultimately, it comes down to this. And I think I tweeted about this the other day. The the goal of specifically conservative Republicans, because they're in power, right, is to give the minimum effective dose, right? This is a pharmacological concept where you get the minimum amount of a drug that will get the response that you want. Uh, there's there's this concept in sports and things like that. You want to do the minimum in order to get the maximum. And this is exactly what lawmakers and politicians do: is they give just enough where they think they're going to be able to get reelected and no more. They're not going to give any more. And this is almost like 99 out of 100 times, this is what happens. Now, sometimes the minimum effective dose is exactly what people are demanding because people are worked up about it. Constitutional carry is a perfect example, right? Did Dan Patrick want to pass that? Absolutely not. But people raged out and he said, okay, well, it looks like the minimum effective dose is to pass this. And so he passes it. Uh, and so beware this go around. This is exactly what Dan Patrick is setting up. He's saying, hey, you know, we know it's a big deal. We want to give a lot of relief. Here's a homestead exemption. Here's $6 billion. And he's going to keep his ear to the floor and say, okay, what are, how are people reacting to what I'm saying? And if people are like, absolutely not, we will absolutely remove you from office the next time you're up if you do this, then guess what? It's going to inflate to $12 billion or $15 billion or whatever he thinks he can get away with. And so it's incumbent upon taxpayers and voters to make sure that they don't get away with uh, as least as they can, but to push them to give the maximum uh, relief for taxpayers. Yeah, so I, you know, there's been a lot of talk the last few weeks, especially as we lead up to the session that starts next week, as far as kind of the setting the stage for the narratives that will play out, right? And so I wanted us to kind of react to this um, here. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up for everyone. So you had House Speaker Dade Phelan uh, tweet a kind of a screen capture of former President Donald Trump there on Truth Social talking about who's at fault, right, for uh, Republicans not necessarily winning, quote, bigly. Um, if you will, at the uh, at the end of the general election. And to, to Speaker Phelan's credit, and I think he's right, I'd be interested to know your thoughts, uh, Tim, but, you know, it's, you had 
you had Texas, right? They did pass things like these kind of the pro-life bills, if you will, right? They passed the heartbeat bill, which got kind of notoriety all across the nation. Um, Of course, they had the, uh, the trigger uh, law as well that they've passed previously. Um, So to, on the the life issue uh, to all extents and purposes, you had at least the Texas house, of course, the Texas legislature uh, collectively uh, react accordingly. And so uh, this is speaker feeling kind of pushing back on the former president to say, well, it's not necessarily the fault of this sort of thing. Perhaps it's the fault, right. Of the president himself. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that. This is something that uh, on Twitter kind of (laughs) went, went pretty crazy. So. Yeah, you know, I think with <clears throat> if anybody who, who has paid attention to the Texas legislature of the last few years, uh, I'll call feel not a little bit because it's it's been pretty apparent and talking to lawmakers when they passed the trigger bill, nobody thought Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned. This was just a yet again, one of these minimum effective doses where it's just like, hey, we passed something in case Roe ever gets overturned. It'll it'll be. And so they got to go parade on it. And then Roe actually got overturned and everybody's like, oh, wow uh crazy and so it's kind of like serendipity right it's like it's like, well look what we did we did this but the the fact is you know uh groups like abolish abortion texas and right to life anybody like I just meet constant resistance and have met historically constant resistance now uh that being said i think for by and large the republican party in general um is against abortion now there's arguments about the exceptions but i i, I in the overall point dave's making i i I tend to agree, right? I don't think the abortion issue on the the national level is why Republicans had a less than expected showing. I mean, they did take the House, right? But of course, if everyone remembers, like we're going to take the House and the Senate, it's going to be a red wave. It was it was not a red wave. <laughs> um, they barely scraped by and got the House. We we did not get the Senate, and so uh, this is not because of abortion. Um, and uh, you know, we we could speculate what it was, and and maybe that now's the time. But uh, I, I tend to agree with this sentiment but i would say that you know propping up texas uh like we're this you know champion of pro-life we will we will see i know i've heard rumors uh that people want to bring back um you know exemptions Thielen being one of the ones that it's rumored that he wants to bring back exemptions and so we will see uh, I, I think that issue is probably too toxic uh, and so i i'm doubtful that that would uh go forward but you never know you never know Another kind of Texas legislative-based uh, tweet that I thought was interesting, I think is relevant to our work. Certainly, you had Representative Matt Schaefer, um, who is a kind of the one of the few conservatives on the House Appropriations Committee, right? The committee in the House that's primarily charged with writing the budget. Uh, do an interesting poll. Granted, it only had a few hundred participants, but I think it speaks to a potential rule change proposal uh, we might see here uh, next week, where he basically asked, he said, should there be a rule change requiring the Texas House Appropriations Bill, the budget bill, to be broken up by subject to allow more scrutiny and debate, um, as opposed to how they currently do it, right, which is just all collectively, you add amendments and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think from a completely pro-transparency and accountability uh, position, absolutely, this is a good idea. Uh, And, you know, from the few hundred uh, Twitter voters on this poll that participated, I think it was like overwhelming. It was like almost 96% of people agreed with that. I'm sure a lot of them are surprised that we don't do that already. But I figured this is a good way to kind of talk about 
the budget itself, the one thing they're constitutionally bound to do, when it does make its way to the overall house floor, especially, right, it's just kind of like it's all in one shot, right? And you have amendments that are impacting different. Yeah, they break it up by the article, right, which is not necessarily subject matter. It's kind of this general right uh summary um of stuff but to to Schaefer's credit i think um he might be right you know if this is a rule that he does in fact or someone else proposes it'd be interesting to see where lawmakers come down on that yeah uh, you know for for our viewers who are not familiar with how the budget goes down it's a big dog and pony show i mean ultimately the the budget is is configured by the lbb uh and really there's not a whole lot of interaction even with the people on the committee and by the time it gets to the house floor essentially it's this really long day uh and it's kind of a party for legislators like literally people drink on the house floor and get drunk there's been multiple times like there's been fights on the floor i remember drew springer raised out one time I Dan Huberty got caught uh, being wasted on the floor because it's all just a big dog and pony show. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so essentially what they do is they get go, they go article by article until everyone kind of gets tired. And then they're like, eh, I guess we're done. And they'll stop in the middle of the budget. They don't even address typically the last half of the budget. And so, you know, it's it is a joke. Right. And so I think Schaefer, uh, maybe he wouldn't phrase it that way, but I think he sees the concerns that, hey, we need to be debating and we need to be voting on these articles. And it would force them to actually vote on each article independently. It is a really good reform. Um, I would even add uh, I'm a fan and not everyone is, but I'm a fan. Uh, we would have to change the Constitution to do this, but changing the budget in a separate session. There's other states that do this. Uh, I would like to see it done in odd years, maybe in January, right before primary primary season where they have to take and they could actually take the time to work through our 270 280 billion dollar biennial budget whatever it's going to be this next year on we'll find out monday with the with the bre um but it is the the process is a joke and our budget is decided essentially by probably about 10 people in the state uh, and everything else all the debate on the house floor is simply just for um I don't want to say for fun, but it's just for points, right? So people could say, hey, I added this rider, that rider. The reality is it goes to conference and all this stuff gets stripped out anyways, and it doesn't really matter. Maybe a few stick, but um, but yeah, it's a great reform and, and we're for it. Definitely agree. I mean, the budget process, as we've talked about several times and likely will continue to talk about uh, going up to when they do it, this, this next session is complete kabuki theater uh, with the exception of the few people that actually have a hand in it. I know several lawmakers um, have complained, especially lawmakers on the Appropriations Committee or on the Senate Finance Committee, right, who just even though they're on the committee, feels feels as though they don't really have a hand in the process. So I can't imagine being a lawmaker that's not on the committee not involved in the discussion, discussion not only with people that chair these committees, but the legislative budget board, right? The people that specialize in each article to not be involved in that and then to be like out of nowhere kind of expected to vote or assume that everything in the budget itself, right, is something that they support or not just because – Frankly, very few lawmakers actually ever vote against the the budget itself. Um, that should be concerning to taxpayers on top of, right, uh, them potentially partying and being drunk while considering, you know, $260 billion worth of state spending for the ninth largest economy in the world. We should demand better uh, from our lawmakers. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reform that needs to happen. But uh, to Representative Schaefer's credit, this is something that would be great if it, it in fact happened or not. So, yeah, I look forward, look forward to seeing the vote and the split on that one for sure. 
The last thing I think that was worthwhile for us to kind of react to, you know, something else in the news, we talked briefly about it earlier, right, is you have this ongoing fight, um, I, fight, I'm using air quotes, I guess, but in Congress, right, where the 118th Congress was supposed to begin, uh, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday, it was supposed to begin on Tuesday, uh, uh, there at noon, and, you know, in the House, you had uh, the Republicans, of course, control Congress, albeit by a slim majority. And uh, you had uh, this kind of this ongoing fight where the everyone thought that uh, Kevin McCarthy, congressman, I believe from California, right, the, uh, the uh, leader of the Republican Party there in the House was going to be um, the speaker. As of this recording, uh, they went through, what was it, three votes as of Tuesday, uh, did not come with a, a, declare, or a clear speaker a winner, and we're going into today when they convene. It'll be interesting to see if that in fact happens. But I think what was worthwhile, you know, there's there was a lot of talk on Twitter as to like, why are they doing this, right? Why is Congress at a standstill? I think both you and I uh, have tweeted something to the effect of like, it's great that they're at a standstill, yes. <laughs> uh, if you will. But I think it's worthwhile to talk about. So you have uh, Representative or Congressman Scott Perry, who's from Pennsylvania, right? Is one of kind of there's. I believe up to 19, but there's one of five that have kind of like stuck out there and said, we have these demands, right, uh, from a Kevin McCarthy, if he would be speaker. And one of the things, you know, I'll put this up on the screen for people to look at. I'm not going to read it, but of the kind of the five initial demands they had, uh, I believe it was five, maybe four um, initial they had, where they said that McCarthy refused, right, uh, refused to kind of enact policies that support these things. The interesting thing is they wanted a balanced budget. Right. And this is something we've talked about several times. Obviously, we focus primarily on the state level. The state does have a requirement that the the budget be balanced, albeit they play games with it. Right. But Congress doesn't. Congress, the the national level, does not have a balanced budget amendment, which is really sad. Um, I think it's one of several reasons that we see ourselves um, in the problem we we have today. And they wanted something, uh, you know, just strictly they wanted the speaker to say, hey, I the would-be speaker to focus on something like a balanced budget. They wanted him to focus on the Fair Tax Act, the Texas border plan, right? Uh, because, uh, frankly, uh, the federal government, which includes Congress, has been reluctant to do anything related to border security. And here in Texas, we're having to pay a ton of money to try to do it for the state's efforts. And then, of course, they talk about term limits for Congress, and they say he refused. So figured I get your thoughts, and we could talk about that for a few seconds. I mean, I, I think this goes back to the earlier comments, right, about the the fact that, you know, we had this major surge of people who are concerned about fiscal policy, things like a balanced budget. And now it seems like, like I said, not 19 Republicans in the 400 and something people in Congress uh, care about a balanced budget and, and, and are demanding it. And now I think when you uh, when you canvass the population at large, I don't know anybody who would declare themselves a conservative that would be against something like a balanced budget. So it shows kind of how swampy uh, the the federal government is and what, what a, a uniparty actually exists. And it actually gives us a very sad uh, look into how many people are actually concerned about fiscal responsibility, about limited government. And it is a very, very small minority of people in the Republican caucus that are concerned about that, about about 20 people, it seems, uh, that it regard this as important. Uh, and that they'll, is- They'll campaign differently, though. Of course like, they will. Yeah. Of course they will. You know, and, and it, it's, I think we just need to wake up. You know, we, we have to shake off, uh, you know, some of the elements of this populist movement and realize that 
Um, it's not just about the party winning. If you're a Republican, it is about the preservation of our country and that the path that we're on is unsustainable. And quite honestly, the path we've been on for decades really has been unsustainable, but we are reaching levels that I never thought were possible. 32 trillion. Uh, if you talk to me in, you know, 2005, 2006, I would have thought the, the country would have collapsed by now before we hit 30 trillion in debt, but here we are uh, still moving. But yet again, it's still unsustainable. I don't know what the number is at, at which we we start suffering severe depression and things like that. And maybe, maybe we're almost there. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but if we don't get serious about fiscal policy, then our country is going to go bankrupt and there's going to be widespread suffering. And I think people need to wake up and start coming back to these constitutional ideas of limited government and fiscal responsibility. If we're going to hand the country over to our children, uh, that's sustainable, uh, and not a mess. You, you spoke about it earlier. I think it's worthwhile to mention yet again, right? The, the kind of the absence of the same tea party personalities now is definitely concerning, right? You had when the tea party was getting started outside of the runaway government spending, right? They were talking about things like deficits, right? And debt. Well, the national debt was half of what it is right now. And, and to kind of have just this like deaf, like you didn't hear anything uh, of that same caliber um, as as Congress was debating, debating, using that very loosely, <laughs> this $1.7 trillion omnibus bill in a year which we just surpassed $31.5 trillion um, in debt. There's nothing on the horizon inside. It's definitely disconcerting. And you, I think you're right, right? It's People are going to have to wake up or we're going to continue, unfortunately, to see. We both got children uh, to see prosper their prosperity, their future prosperity uh, go away. So it's definitely concerning. Yeah, I, I think, and I've always been an advocate of, you know, 10th Amendment style state sovereignty. Um, I, I'm just convinced this is the answer. And and one of the main reasons I'm more convinced lately is is moves that like Florida has made over the pandemic and things like that. Um, I just think the federal government is beyond repair. It's broken. Uh, I would urge people to shift their focus to state politics uh, because quite honestly, this is the way the system was designed, right? The, the, we, we were designed to have sovereign states unified under a very limited federal government. Of course, that is no longer the case. However, the answer to fixing the federal government is not continuing to elect lying losers who just lie to you in the campaign and they go up there and then of, of the, you know, of the 218 or 19, uh, 20 of them actually care about something. The rest of them are just willing to, to continue the swamp business as usual. I don't think we're going to get a whole lot of, of really good effects by pouring a lot of time, money, and effort into, into electing federal representatives, whether it be in the Senate or the House. I do think that by, uh, by electing strong state representatives, a strong governor, uh, strong, a strong state is the best way to push back on the federal government, especially in Texas, where we have such a large population and such a large amount of tax money that goes and funds the federal government. Uh, if Texas were to stand up in the same way that Florida or even better than, than Florida has in a certain, there's not really a whole lot the federal government could do. They literally don't even have the manpower to 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 rein in a Texas if we wanted to stand for things like fiscal responsibility, refuse to take part uh, in, in a federal government who does not have uh, um, you know, a, a restrained budget. And so I would urge people to engage with state politics. This is the perfect time to do that. We are uh, going into our legislative session. This is 
is the time where we can make some really awesome reforms. But I can tell you right now that lawmakers and politicians are not going to do that. They will continue to do business as, as usual as long as we do not apply pressure. And I think this is the perfect Time to just remind people that this is the mission of our organization, Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. And I would urge everyone to go to texastaxpayers.com, sign up, subscribe to the fiscal notes, subscribe to our vote notices so you can get real-time updates. We are going to do the best job that we can to make sure that you are informed and to make sure that you know what is going on in the state legislature so we can kind of amplify our voices and push the legislature in the right way. I'm excited. There's a lot on the horizon. We're working on a hell of a lot, and uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. But it's only going to be worthwhile if uh, if we all kind of work together uh, and take advantage of the opportunity that is this legislative session. So, absolutely, I would urge everybody to tune in uh, next Tuesday, which is when we are um, going to be. We will be at the Capitol reporting live on what happens with the swearing in, the speaker's race, and everything. Uh, so, I believe is it what 10 a.m. or 1 1 p.m. that they convene. They'll uh, they'll convene at noon. Noon, okay. So at noon. So y'all tune in. We should be. We should have a, probably a couple of live uh, feeds, just kind of letting everybody know what's going down. Uh, we appreciate y'all. We're excited for next week. Y'all be sure and tune in. Be sure and subscribe to our channel. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. For even more content, head over to our website, texastaxpayers.com, where you can find all of our written content, our fiscal responsibility index, and a whole host of resources that can help you navigate the upcoming 88th legislative session. Subscribe for the fiscal note and vote notices to stay informed on issues that affect your wallet. Thanks.